I had to look it up. The last time I taught was, I, like I said, over over a year ago, and I, I taught the first part of Second Timothy chapter one, and we're gonna do the next part in Second Timothy chapter one. Uh, Paul, in writing his letter to Timothy, uh, Paul is an apostle. Uh, he was a church planter commissioned by God to plant churches in the Gentile world. So if you're a Gentile here this morning, you can thank the apostle Paul. He did his job well because we're here uh, in a church together. And uh, he took alongside of him a young man by the name of Timothy uh, because Timothy shared not only the same beliefs, but the same heart for the ministry as Paul did. Uh, Paul, in one of his letters, said that I'm sending you Timothy because I have nobody who is like-minded like he is, uh, which is saying a lot because Paul knew lots of people, and he had one person who shared his heart for ministry. And Paul already wrote uh, Timothy a letter. We call that First Timothy. And in that letter, Paul shared with Timothy how to run a church, what a church service should look like, uh, the different roles and the responsibilities, and he, he detailed that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, 1 Timothy, the, the letter. In this second letter that he writes to Timothy, it's towards the end of his life. In this letter, he says, my departure is near, or my end is right around the corner. So he's, he's writing this letter uh, knowing that he's not going to be able to see or perhaps even talk with Timothy again. Uh, though he hopes to, he's not sure. And so he has in view the end of his ministry, the end of his life. And the content of this letter for Paul to Timothy is not on how you should do things in the church, but how uh, a pastor should conduct himself in, in terms of his character. And so he's writing uh, not necessarily about the work, but the worker uh, in the ministry. And so, uh, Paul, again, Paul is not concerned that there's some drastic needs that need to be changed. He was a, a pastor who was like-hearted, um, but he, he's doubling down on the character a pastor should have. And so that's, that's the theme of Second Timothy. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have uh, Bibles in the back, and uh, if you just slip up your hand, we can get one to you. Uh, if not, let's open with a word of prayer and remember our pastor as he's away this morning. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your word uh, that you've given to us, and we thank you for our pastor, uh, who's not here this morning, but uh, is uh, taking a much-needed uh, rest and after uh, a celebration of uh, his, his daughter's wedding. Father, we pray that you would uh, bless him with uh, a refreshing word from you in the fellowship that he's attending this morning, Lord, that you would refresh him physically as he's uh, in a nice place uh, away from the normal routine, uh, that you would cause uh, us to be blessed this morning as well as we dig into your word, Lord, that your uh, word would be a light unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that we would know a little bit more about who you are and a little bit more about who we are in light of you. So, Father, we ask that you would accomplish all of these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm not sure if you've seen the title of today's sermon, but uh, it's short and to the point, uh, which is the gospel and suffering and how those two things are related. Uh, not necessarily the thing that everybody wants to hear on a Sunday morning is suffering, 
Um, but there are, are lots of things in life uh, over which, uh, or which include suffering. Uh, in fact, a lot of the good things in life include suffering. Uh, Pastor Art at a wedding yesterday uh, heard about some suffering. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you're married, if you remember this. Um, I was reflecting on this. Uh, next weekend is my uh, six-year anniversary. Uh, and Pastor Art was at that one too. He presided over my wedding and uh, he included words of suffering in the vows <laughs> that I made before God. He, he said for better and for worse, <laughs> for richer and for poorer, in good times and in bad times. He, he included those negative things in the vows because he knew that in the good thing of marriage, there is suffering. And I got married anyway. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's a good thing all of those things were included in the vows. And because in the last six years of my life, I've experienced greater joys than in all of the years before and greater suffering in all of the years before. I have known both because both are tied to that one event. Uh, you could say the same thing uh, for having kids. Uh, if you've had kids or you currently have kids, uh, it is both a joy and a suffering. <laughs> uh, currently, we're, we're trying to sleep train our youngest, and so that suffering includes lots of non-sleeping during sleeping times. <laughs> and it's, it's a, a suffering of sleeplessness at times. And it's, the, it, it's a joy that's tied to suffering. And that's what Paul is communicating in our passage this morning. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12 will be our text this morning, and I invite you to follow along as I read it to you out loud. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began." but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You may be seated. If you were going to write a longer sermon title, it would be that Christian leaders uh, will unashamedly suffer for the gospel. Christian leaders, faithful Christian leaders, will suffer for the gospel, and they'll do so without being ashamed. Uh, Paul invites Timothy to
to suffer, to suffer on purpose, uh, much like I was invited to suffer on purpose on my wedding day. <laughs> the good comes with the bad sometimes, but that's what Paul invites Timothy to do. Notice there in verse 8, um, Paul says that faithful Christian leaders are, will suffer for the gospel Notice what he says again in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. Uh, Whenever you're reading your Bible or studying your Bible and you see a word, therefore, you should figure out what it's there for. And so that it's telling us that there's something else that he, that has made him say this statement that he's about to say. It's there because of what has just been said. And uh, if you don't remember a year and a half ago when I filled in last, neither do I, so don't feel bad, um, I'll tell you what that therefore is there for. Uh, in verse 5, he reminded Timothy that he uh, saw Timothy as a faithful follower of Christ uh, who was gifted by God with spiritual gifts that needed to be stirred up in verse 6, uh, and that uh, as a follower of God, he was filled with the Spirit of God Uh, There in verse 7, which is not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so he's telling Timothy in the flow of his letter that because you are a faithful follower, because you are gifted by God to serve in the ministry, because God has given you his spirit, which is a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind, because of all of these things, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Uh, Don't be ashamed of Paul as a prisoner of the Lord, but share with Paul, share with me, Paul would say, in the sufferings for the gospel. So there's two commands here, and the first is do not be ashamed. Uh, And there would be uh, a lot of reasons in Paul's day to be ashamed of, of the gospel. Uh, as in our culture today, there are certain aspects of the message that we have that aren't popular. <laughs> that if you proclaim them, you might lose. If you proclaim them on your Facebook account, you may lose some friends. <laughs> if you held up God's standard of truth, if you held up God's standard of love, if you held up God's standard of our own righteousness apart from God, uh, you may lose friends because. They're not always consistent with our culture. In fact, they're becoming less and less consistent with the world in which we live. And the world in which Paul lived, uh, they weren't that popular. When Paul was being, as a prisoner, sent to Rome, he wrote ahead in a letter to those in Rome, and he's, he said, hey, uh, I'm not sure what you've heard about me, <laughs> but, let, but hear me out on what I'm about to say. Let's gather together, and I want to tell you my side of the story because I'm not sure of what you've heard about me in particular. And those who were in Rome were like, you know, we haven't heard about you in particular, although we, we are interested in hearing from you because we have heard about this new sect called Christianity. And the only thing that we've really heard about it is that it's spoken against everywhere. Imagine joining that club. Like, yes, please join our club. It's spoken against everywhere. <laughs> Please don't be ashamed to be a part of our club. (laughs) It it would be easy in Paul's day to to have that shame associated with it. And it would be easy in our day, so likewise, in in certain regards, 
to be called a Christian. And Paul says, don't, don't be ashamed. And he, he gives them clarity over two things. Uh, first, the testimony of our, of our Lord. The, the testimony of our Lord is, is simply the gospel, which he's going to explain in the next couple of verses, verse 9 uh, and 10. He'll look and give his own explanation there, but he, Paul actually gives even a clearer explanation of what the gospel is. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, Paul explaining what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which means he's about to tell us what it is, uh, which you also received and in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast, which, uh, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. Uh, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So here's the gospel message. Are you ready? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means before Jesus came, there were promises in the Old Testament that said Jesus would die for our sins and that our sins were bad enough that they needed to be died for <laughs> and that one of us is going to die. Either Jesus will die for our sins or we will die for our sins. And there was a promise given in Scripture that Jesus would die for our sins. And so he, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It was promised in the Old Testament 400 years before even Jesus came, the last Old Testament book being written, promised that the Savior would die for our sins and rise, that we might have life. According to the scriptures, he says, uh, and, that, uh, and that he was seen uh, by Cephas, that's the um, apostle Peter, and then by the 12, that's the other disciples. And then Paul would say, he was seen by me as one born out of season. Uh, Paul was persecuting the church before he became a church planter which is an interesting job resume. If you're going to go plant churches, I recommend not persecuting the church. But that's what Paul was doing. He was actively causing suffering <laughs> in the body of Christ before he took on the suffering in the body of Christ. And he chose to suffer with those who were suffering because of the gospel. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That, that wouldn't be a popular message. Jesus dying on a cross would be like, me saying to you, hey, let's follow this, this Savior. And it's like, okay, well, how's he a Savior? And well, he died by the electric chair. And you're like, he died by, how? how? <laughs> that, that's reserved for the worst kind of punishment for criminals. And even then, we'd, we'd really rather not do it. That's, how, that's what crucifixion was in, in Paul's day. He's like, don't be ashamed that our Savior died a, a death on a cross. And he's like, and also don't be ashamed of me, uh, his prisoner, he, he says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoners. He would say in other uh, writings in, in the book of Acts when he says, uh, for the hope of Israel, I am bound in this chain. In the book of Ephesians, when he was talking about his own prayer request, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. <laughs> uh, I, if it would have been different this morning, if I would have told you, uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel in Valley Springs. Our pastor is in jail today. <laughs> Would that change your desire to attend in person? <laughs> that This is the kind of letter Paul is writing. Like, don't be ashamed of me that I'm in jail. I'm not suffering as an evildoer. I'm, I'm here, he'll go on to explain later, because I've been 
faithful to the calling that God has on my life. <laughs> I'm doing life right. Where are you at right now? Oh, I'm in jail. <laughs> are you sure you're doing life right? Most people who are in jail aren't doing life right. I'm just saying. W would you be ashamed that you attend Calvary Chapel of Valley Springs because your pastor is in jail? Because that's, that's going on around the world and the way our country is going, that's not far from here either. Uh, just north of our, our border, there's a, a pastor. You may have heard of him. Uh, he's not been in a lot of the news, but he, uh, Pastor James Coates, on February 16th, uh, was put in uh, basically jail for 35 days for holding church services. And that, that's in Canada where they're, you know, they're known for being nice. <laughs> so they, they don't call it jail in Canada. They call it a, a remand sender, which sounds much nicer, but it's still jail. But, but that's the direction of cultures in general. That's the direction of our culture right now is suffering for the gospel and not being ashamed of the suffering that's associated with that, not being ashamed of the unpopular parts of the gospel message that the Bible calls certain things sin that the world sees as worth celebrating. So Paul says, I'm in chains and Jesus died on a cross, but these aren't things to be ashamed of. Paul says, instead of being ashamed, and that, that shame would tend us to divert us from the suffering for the gospel, he says, rather, uh, and, and here it is, uh, the invitation to suffer on purpose. I'm not sure if, you, if, I, if I put up a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Suffering. <laughs> Please sign up. Name, phone number, contact. We want to make sure you get your suffering. If you would sign up. This is essentially what Paul is asking for, for Timothy to do. Uh, the, the phrase that he uses there uh, when he says, uh, join, uh, but share with me in the sufferings, the phrase share with me in the sufferings, all one word in the Greek. Only time it's ever used in the New Testament and all of the, the scholarly people that I read concerning this, they're like, we're pretty sure Paul just made up this word. <laughs> it's a compound word that's not found anywhere else. Um, but the, the sense of it is, take your part in the suffering. <laughs> it's like, there, there's a section of suffering that's designated for you, Timothy. Uh, it's right here. <laughs> Please join in. <laughs> uh, we actually had a very similar sign-up list to this last week. It's no longer available, I'm sorry. Uh, we had a men's work day, or a work day at the church. And I can tell everybody who, who joined in that, because they're all like, I can't grab anything. <laughs> they joined in suffering. It's called work. Um, often that's another area of life that we, 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 we complain about having to do until we, we can't do it or are, don't have a job anymore. <laughs> it's suffering. It's like, uh, please sign up for suffering. Yes, I would like to apply to suffer. Yes, I'd like to get up early in the morning and I'd like to suffer for eight hours at a time as long as there's a lunch break and you know, there's good benefits. <laughs> this is what work is. It's suffering on purpose. 
It's like dieting or exercising. It's all of those things or coming to a work day. It's suffering on purpose. And, and what Paul is saying is in regards to your service to the Lord, there's going to be suffering associated with that. Paul, in fact, in defending the fact that he was a minister of the gospel, uh, he didn't put his you know, Bible college degree or you know, his, his seminary certificate on the wall or when he was writing a letter to the Corinthians uh, in, in an effort to prove that he was a minister of the gospel. This is what he writes. So in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, he writes concerning himself, and others, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors, more abundance. In stripes, that's when he was being beaten. Above measure, in prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and they thought he was dead so they stopped throwing rocks at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I have spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the cities, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches." That's his resume. <laughs> you, want to be, you want to prove that you're a pastor? Show me your list of suffering. And this was early in Paul's ministry. This was before he's writing 1 Timothy. <laughs> he suffered more after this. So it would be easier to suffer less. But Paul, when he wanted to prove that he was a minister, didn't point to academic accomplishments, he, po he pointed to the things that he had suffered. So quick side note question uh, that popped in my mind as I was reading this is like he's writing as a pastor to a pastor that pastors are called to serve and with that service is going to come suffering. But is that for everyone? Will all who desire to live godly suffer persecution? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question that I put into your mouth. Later on in 2 Timothy, he answers that very question. The question, again, will all who desire to live godly suffer persecution? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. <laughs> There's the answer. There's going to be a cost to living a life that is godly. I'm not sure if that was in the promise book of Bible promises that you got for Christmas. <laughs> List of Bible promises. You will suffer persecution. Be blessed. <laughs> Probably not. It's not one that many Christians would highlight. But uh, the Apostle Peter tells all believers in, in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
Don't think that it's a strange thing, like, oh, I must be doing something wrong. Later in that same chapter in 1 Peter 4, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. He'd conclude that chapter by saying in 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. I want you to hear that again. <laughs> let those who suffer according to the will of God. This means it is the will of God at times for us to suffer. That's not anything different than what Jesus' life expressed. Jesus' life expressed suffering, right? <laughs> Jesus was perfect in his obedience to God. Did Jesus suffer? Yeah. Okay. We can expect the same if we're doing life perfectly. <laughs> but associate it with that, uh, the last phrase there in verse 8, it says, according to the power of God. This isn't anything that God expects us to do apart from the Spirit of God and the power of God working in us and through us. And in fact, that was even the case in Jesus' life. Before Jesus, in his greatest act of obedience, went to the cross, you know what his prayer was? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us in Luke 9, uh, sorry, not Luke 9, but uh, in uh, Luke 22, uh, verse uh, 42 and 43, Jesus said, if there's any other way, God, <laughs> nevertheless, not my will, but your be done. Jesus was looking at the cross and was we like, is there a plan B? <laughs> I see lots of suffering in that option. <laughs> Can we do any other way, please? And God answered that prayer without words. The very next verse, we're told that uh, the Lord sent an angel to strengthen him. That is a nonverbal answer. Here's the strength you need for the obedience that you're about to, <laughs> the suffering that you're about to endure. Jesus prayed and received strength for his obedience to endure the suffering that he needed. If Jesus needed to pray <laughs> for strength to endure suffering, are, are we in any less need? No, we are. We're in need of that. Beyond this invitation to suffer on purpose, Paul gives Timothy the, the purpose for the suffering. Why, why are we suffering for this anyway? What is this that we're suffering for? He describes the gospel in verses 9 and 10. Notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. Again, he's describing the gospel that is worth the suffering. He says, uh, with regard to God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes, own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed in the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought to life immortality uh, to light through the gospel. And so Paul here describes what the gospel is. He starts off by describing it there at the beginning of the verses. Uh, the gospel is God's work. Notice how he describes it there. The uh, uh, God who has, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. The gospel describes the work that God does. He saved us. We did not save ourselves. We are in need of a savior that's other than us to save us 
from, our, from ourselves, <laughs> not just the, the wickedness that's out there in the world. We would need that if that's all that was there. But he saved us from the wickedness that was in our heart. And it's not a result of our own works. Notice what he says, not according to our works. Our salvation is a result of his works. If it was up to us, we would not be saved. We are saved because he did the work. We're not saved because we have come to church enough times. We have read our Bibles enough times. We have studied the Greek and the Hebrew. We have shared the gospel. We have served in children's ministry. We even volunteered for VBS. Sign-ups are in the foyer. None of those good works get us our salvation. All of those good works are good expressions of our salvation. They're good for sharing the gospel through our actions and attitudes and words, but none of those things save us. Our salvation is a work that God does, and that's the gospel. So the gospel is God's work. Also, the gospel calls us to live differently. Notice it says, and he called us with a holy calling. That calling is, he, he didn't just call us out of the world, he called us into a holy life. A life that is set apart. The word holy, uh, it, it describes in part uh, what we would say is a, is a saint, which is a very churchy word you know, calling kind of a churchy word. Um, but what that means is someone who's been set aside for a particular work. Um, let's make it a, a bit more tangible. So in my house, uh, as opposed, I suppose is in your house, I have lots of dishes. And, and they go through this cycle of being used and being dirty and then living in my sink until I need them again. And then I wash them. And after I wash them, I don't put them on the ground. I have a toddler and I have a dog and they would no longer be sanctified. Because when they are clean, they are sanctified and they are set aside for good use. They are kept clean <laughs> from the mess that's other messes until I have a, a very specific mess that I wanna put on it. And God does the same for us. He takes us out of the world and he cl cleanses us for himself. He sets us aside for his own purposes. And the life that we're to live, the life that he's called us to is a holy life. It's a call to live differently. It's according to his purpose and according to his grace. The gospel was given before time and revealed on time through Jesus. Notice there at the end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10, He says, concerning the gospel of Christ uh, and the grace that was given to him, it was given in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed at the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our salvation was determined for us. God, and all the good gifts that he had for us, were in God's heart before time began, which I'm very thankful for, because I think if he would have waited to see what kind of life I would have lived, he would have changed his mind. <laughs> it was always in his heart for us to be working alongside of him, expressing the salvation that he has done for us. The gospel tells us that Christ abolished death and brought, life, uh, brought to light life and immortality. Notice how verse 10 ends. Concerning Jesus Christ, he says, uh, 
who has abolished death. Do you know what it means to abolish something? It's to make it of no effect anymore. Uh, Paul, in, in writing, saying death is abolished, which means it, it, it's no longer a factor. He's not talking about the physical death, but the death that Adam and Eve died in their disobedience to God, a spiritual death. He abolished that death. He put that death to death. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but death hasn't always been around. Also, death is not always going to be around either. When God created Adam and Eve, there was no death. But because of disobedience, death was the consequence, the death of spiritual life in their relationship with God and physical death. When Jesus died, he conquered sin and death, the curse of sin, the sting of sin. Paul says elsewhere has been removed. Imagine if all of the bees that are flying around this spring had no stingers. That'd be wonderful. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> Imagine if all of the rose plants that you have in a garden of all of the thorns were removed. I would really love that. <laughs> They're just beautiful, not thorny. <laughs> this, this sting of death has been taken away. Death itself has been abolished, and not only that, but life and immortality have been brought to life. What was lost has been regained by the work of Jesus, and not only regained, but gifted to us. Not because we deserved it again, but because of the gracious gift of God. So how are we supposed to do this? Now that we know that not only are pastors supposed to suffer on purpose, and suffer with purpose, suffering for the glorious good news of the gospel. But where does endurance for suffering come from? Verse uh, 11 and 12, Paul tells us through his own experience that endurance for suffering comes through knowing God. Endurance for suffering comes from knowing God himself. Notice what he says there in verse 11. Uh, with regard again to the gospel, he says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Paul reminds us of his calling. He reminds Timothy. It's not that Timothy was like, oh, I didn't know you were an apostle. He's not reminding Timothy because Timothy doesn't know, but Paul's explaining again. He's connecting the call that God had on his life is connected to the suffering that he's currently suffering. They're, they're not mutually exclusive or incidentally happening at the same time. They are happening because they go together. Paul says, I was appointed this was not something that Paul chose for himself. It wasn't even something the church thought would be a good idea for Paul. They're like, Paul, we see that you're, you're pretty bold in what you believe. You were persecuting the church beforehand, so we think you should be a church planter. That's what we think you should do. <laughs> Former murderer, church planter. All right, that's all we're looking for. That, that, that wasn't how it happened. We're told in Acts chapter 9 that while Paul was on his way to persecute the church, that Jesus intervened, blinded him on the road, and said, I have a calling on your life, Paul. And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? He didn't know who he was, but he knew he was the Lord. 
And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I want to make a connection there real quick. Jesus wasn't on earth anymore. The church was being persecuted. But Jesus took it personally. The suffering that believers endure, Jesus takes personally. I'm not sure if I came up to you after service and just started poking you in your eye, if you would notice. My assumption is that you probably would. <laughs> the Bible describes his people as the apple of his eye. And when somebody's poking his eye, <laughs> he notices. <laughs> and he took notice of Paul and he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? God would then tell him, after Paul asked his second question, Lord, who are you? The second question is, what do you want me to do? I'm not sure if you've ever asked those questions, but those are great questions to ask. You can ask those questions anytime. Lord, who are you? That's a question God wants to answer in your life. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a question God has an answer to in your life. The Bible tells us that uh, he's prepared good works beforehand that you should walk in them. In the same way that we're prepping for VBS with soup cans, God has pre prepared your own soup cans. It could even be a soup can. I don't know. But God has prepared good works for you to walk in. He says, I was appointed. Even in this letter, he says, he reminds Timothy at the very beginning of the letter in 2 Timothy 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That is, I am what I am as an expression of God's will. God's will is being revealed in me being me doing what God wants me to do. And, and there's a that for you. There's an expression of God's will for your life. That your life will reveal God's will to the world around you because of who God created you to be. I can't do it because God didn't call me to do that. He called you to do that. <laughs> and then he told me to tell you that. <laughs> but Paul then connects that. He says in, in verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things. He says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. And then he tells us how he does this. How he endures the suffering. Again, in verse 12, the second part, he says, for I know whom I have believed. No, take note of that. Not I know what I have believed. I didn't take a, a new believer's class. I didn't read a systematic theology. I recommend both of those things. Those are good things. It, it, but it wasn't a matter of knowledge of doctrine. It was a knowledge of God himself, which comes through that. But it was a relationship with God that makes the difference. You know, you can know a lot about someone without knowing anything about someone. You can read a biography on... Abraham Lincoln, and know a lot about him. If I wrote a biography about my brother, you could know when he was born, perhaps a few, a few details of his life, and you could know maybe more details than I can even remember in one sitting, but I know my brother because I live with him. I have my whole life. <laughs> him, most of his life. He's my older brother. So uh, he, I know him. I, I, if somebody's like, oh, we're going to be doing this, do you think your brother would want to join us? I'd be like, nope. <laughs> I, I don't even have to ask. You know why? Because I know him. I know what he wants. I know what he doesn't want. I know what he likes. I know what he doesn't like. 
Paul says, for I know whom I have believed. Endurance for suffering comes through fellowship with God. Not only just fellowship with God, but faith in God. He says, and I am persuaded that he is able to, commit, uh, to keep what I have committed to him. What that is, is it could be two different things, but my own understanding of this passage here is that Paul had committed his life and living his life for as long as he could live it into God's hands. The way my youth pastor used to explain it is, I'm invincible until God wants to take me home. And that's the way Paul lived his life. He went from city to city preaching the gospel till people got saved, until other people caused a riot and kicked him out. That's how he knew it was time to leave. People want to kill me. My work here is done. Moving on. One, one preacher noted that every city that Paul went into, he, he caused a riot, and every city I go to, they want to serve me tea. <laughs> He was an English preacher, so, you know, that's what they do. <laughs> but Paul preached until he got a reaction of some kind, <laughs> until he, he got repentance or rebellion, but he drew it out one way or the other. And he was able to do that. He was able to endure that suffering because Christ also suffered and died. You know, it, it, it said when you share a joy, that joy is doubled. But when you share a suffering, it's halved because <laughs> you're not suffering alone. And there's always fellowship with the Father, and there's, there's a certain fellowship that is only found in the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses, I think it's around 9 and 10, that there's a fellowship in the sufferings that comes before the joy of resurrection. He is persuaded that what the life that he gave to God, that God is able to keep that life. And notice what he says there, until that day. Uh, that's kind of a technical term. Uh, the ladies have been studying end times events. And uh, the technical term for study of end times events is eschatology. That's your, your $10 word for today. Uh, it's study of end times events. But there's two kinds of eschatology. There's the eschatology where you study the end times of all time, the end of all time, the study of that. But there's also a, a, a thing called personal eschatology. That's the end of your time. And that time is different for each one of us. That time could be today for any one of us. None of us are promised tomorrow. And that's what I believe Paul is talking about here. Until the day God calls me home, he is able to keep what I've committed to him. My own personal eschatology is when God wants me to go home to heaven, I'm ready to go. I'm not sure if at the end of your work day, if you go to work and work is hard and loud and hard and loud and hard, <laughs> at the end of the day, if somebody has to tell you twice, hey, it's time for you to go home. Nope, I'm out. <laughs> home is where my family is, where, where all the people I love are at. The reason why I endure that suffering is for their good. And that's what heaven is for believers. While we're here on earth, we're busy about the work that he's given to us. And when that work is done, I want to go home. <laughs> I mean, I love you guys, but I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> so where are you at this morning? If you're a new believer, this is what I want you to know. God has a calling on your life for you to live 
for his purposes according to his grace. You are not saved by the works that you do. Your works express the salvation that God has given to you. That with the service will come suffering, even if you're doing it right, and sometimes especially if you're doing it right. But this is what you need to believe, that God is able to keep what you commit to him, the life, your life that you give to him. Perhaps you need to stop thinking that it will always be easy and that it's never God's will for you to suffer. It will be hard, but God will see you through. Again, Peter reminds us, since Christ suffered for us in his flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. If you're a mature believer here this morning, and you could have shared all of these things even better uh, than I could have, uh, I hope that you're reminded this morning that God has a call on your life and that others uh, have seen that call on your life. But my question is, are you still walking in that calling that God has on your life? Are you living the life that God would have you live? Are you walking in obedience to the things that he's called you to? Have you become ashamed to become known as a believer? Have you stopped serving to avoid suffering? Let me remind you to give yourself to the good gift that God has given you. And do again the first works. If you wouldn't consider yourself a believer here this morning, uh, there's good news. It's called the gospel. <laughs> it says that uh, your life has been messed up by sin. Not just by the sins of others, though that's part of it, but by the sins in your own life. The sins that you have chosen to do but that if you admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and if that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose on the third day, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says you shall be saved from the, the penalty of sin, from the power of sin in your life, and from the presence of sin, ultimately when we're in heaven, living in a world where there is no more sin and death. It's the invitation I want to give to you this morning if you you've never given your life to the Lord, this, the sting of death is still there, but it's been removed. And I would invite you this morning before you leave to ask Jesus to be your Savior, the Lord of your life, the one who calls the shots. I'm going to close in prayer and invite the worship team up to close in a song for us. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, for the clarity of your word, uh, how candid your word is to, to tell us the truth about what serving you looks like. While it's good and glorious and brings you honor, it can sometimes be painful. It could be shameful in, in the world's eyes. It can include suffering, but we thank you, Lord, for, for suffering for us, not only as an example, but for, for the payment of our sins, Lord, that we no longer have to live under the penalty of our sins, that the, the sin, uh, the, the sting of death has been taken away. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and able 
to keep what has been committed to you. Lord, until our very last breath, Lord, you are able to commit, keep what we commit to you, which is our life. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We pray that our lives would be an expression of love to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.